Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 60 of the Speaking Club podcast. I was in Florida staring through a window the first time I really encountered humanity. It was over in seconds though, as he swam away to join his tankmate Susan. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Welcome to show number 60. I am chuffed to bits to be interviewing Peter Cheese today. He is a thought leader and expert in people and organisational change, having led Accenture's global talent and organisational performance consulting arm, and more recently, leading the leadership and HR professional bodies. More importantly for this show, he is also a wonderful speaker in demand across the UK and internationally. As well as dissecting Peter's approach to speaking and his tips on how to be great, we are also going to be looking at the future of work and how individuals and organisations can prepare for what's coming. And who knows what that's going to be. It's a good one and I know you'll enjoy it and get great value. Okay, that being said, let's get on to the interview. Peter Cheese, welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. Um, so I've got, I've got lots and lots to ask you, but I just wanted to start off uh, by asking you, you know, why you, did you choose a career that was focused on the people side of business? Because it's, it's a very strong theme, you know, pretty much throughout mm. in the whole of your career. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think I've always <clears throat> been interested in, in people and humanity and behaviours and all those sorts of things. I mean, it goes back actually, <clears throat> I think in many ways to my own childhood. I, I come from a very medical family. And my parents and grandparents were all doctors, and I thought about being a doctor for quite a long time myself. But then I did a degree in ergonomics at Loughborough University, which is all about understanding people in the system, if you will, and, and how people and technology and workplaces and so forth all interact. So I think I've always had an interest in people in the widest sense and, and had many opportunities, I suppose, to kind of explore that passion and theme through my professional life. Cool. So, so I didn't realise you studied ergonomics. So, from mm. from getting you know qualified in that, how what happened next? How did you end up? Because um, I know you one of the big Accenture. How did you go from mm. the ergonomics to to where you ended up? Yeah, I think uh, what I learned in that course, which was a great course, it was very sort of broad and learned a lot about everything from yeah human biology, physiology, and psychology, but also learned a lot about engineering and systems and computing and now. Uh, recognizing this was late 70s it was a sort of the in many ways i suppose the dawn of the uh, the large-scale technological revolution in business um and that's what really interested me as i came out of that course as i wanted to work uh, in something where you know a lot of change was happening i wanted to work in business but i wanted to be able to try to bring together what i could see as a, an emerging world of, of technology and how much that was going to change things um, with my interest in in people and business, and I was lucky enough to to find this organisation, which ultimately became Accenture. At that time, it was the consulting division of Arthur Anderson, which is an audit and tax business, yeah. um, and then grew with that for 30 years. And uh, when I left, it was a very large publicly quoted company. So you literally their man and boy, basically, until <laughs> yeah, wow. Yes. Okay, yeah. and so so how what do you know? Can you take me through Jenny at Accenture? Accenture, you mm-hmm. you started off. Uh, what was the sort of first role you had, and how did you move on into? It was change was a big focus, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, but the, the first the first things I did was really to learn about computing and and technology. So I I did a lot of programming and uh, oh. things like that. And it's it really is going back to the early days. You know, sort of punch cards and assembler uh, language and things like that. But it was, it was the first things I learned. But then got very involved in uh, working predominantly in sort of process and manufacturing type businesses and helping them to improve their you know, basic operations 
um, using technology, using co computing technology. So it was the early days of enterprise systems as they became known. Um, and I did that for many years and then moved into uh, areas like aerospace and the airline industry and hospitality, um, started really broaden out in terms of the kinds of work I was doing and, and steadily got more and more involved with, in essence, the people side of change. Um, and then my last eight years or so at Accenture were running their global consulting and services business uh, all around the people stuff, so all of the HR um, practices and consulting work we did, all of the leadership and management, the organizational strategy and change management and a really fascinating time and the opportunities that you know, a firm like that gave me throughout my career were phenomenal, you know, working with many, many different businesses, um, often on very interesting and challenging problems and, and working very, very internationally and it was an incredible time and a lot of change in the world of business but also change you know, in, in the different sort of phases of globalization that we've been witnessing and, and how businesses started to really open up their horizons and think uh, much more globally uh, in the last sort of 20, 30 years. And it's been a really fascinating journey working with a great firm with great people. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, that's, I, I've not heard many people mention Assembler. I have an IT background initially. I did uh, TPF <laughs> programming and we, yeah, right. we use Assembler. Not many people talk about it these days. It's very, very neat. Nope. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because I heard you give a talk recently on the future of work and there is definitely a passion for technology coming through still, mm -hmm. I think. So I, I felt that. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it's interesting in terms of what's happened from, you know, when, when you started work, I was sort of working late 80s when I started in IT. But the, I guess the transformation that we've witnessed over, you know, our lifetime has been absolutely phenomenal when you think about it. Do you think that, you know, that there's going to be that much evolution in the next sort of 20 to 30 years that, you know, in the amount that we've witnessed in our, in our lifetime? Yes, I think all the signs are that it will be even greater. Because um, you're right, we have witnessed a lot of change. Um, but equally, I think in many things about how we think about work and structural organizations and how we think about leadership, um, up until, I would say, more recent years, had, had pretty much stayed the same. Um, so we were in many ways using technology to drive you know, process efficiencies and things like that. Um, and there's a very interesting quote from a, a, a U.S. economist back in the, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, who said it's extraordinary with all this technology, which is showing up everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. And, <laughs> and, and it, <coughs> it was interesting <coughs> excuse me, to observe how much was being invested in technology. But it was still in pretty much the same sorts of business models. But as I said, just using enterprise systems and things like that to run processes and administration functions in particular much more efficiently. Yeah. Now, there were you know, definitely some industries which I think you could see technology be much more transformative for, and particularly as we saw the rise of automation and things like um, uh, car assembly and manufacture. But, but as I said, I think a lot of the business models and ways of thinking and certainly how we thought about people, how we thought about leadership and management hadn't changed very much. Um, and I think it's only in more recent years we started to think a lot more about those dimensions. And then to answer your question, I think if we look ahead now, we can see because of rapid advances and things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and the Internet of Things and all these sorts of uh, fast-growing technologies that we really are going to be seeing a lot more change in the next 20 years, even more than we've seen in the last 20 years, which is why I think this sort of phraseology that we're moving into the fourth industrial revolution and that we're you know, now at a bit of an inflection point, I think holds some real truth. I was trying to think, you know, was, that, was the industrial revolution really the last big one or has there been anything since? I don't think historically there's been anything since, but uh, it is going to be interesting to see what happens. Okay, so you were yeah. in Accenture. What led mm -hmm. you to make the transition from Accenture into um, the Institute of Leadership and Management? Because that's quite, it's quite a change, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, I actually had done 30 years and, and um, as they put it in their language, retired from Accenture after 30 years um, to the day. Uh, and uh, I had a big leaving party with <laughs> one of my close colleagues and friends who joined us in the same day as me 30 years prior. But um, 
no, it just felt like a natural kind of time. I'd had a great career there, seen some amazing things, learned some amazing things, but I just felt it was definitely time to move on and that I, I wanted to continue to grow my career in, in some different directions. Um, and I did start to get very interested um, in how I could take the things that I'd learned in a big global consulting business and working for large corporates into more of, if you will, a sort of wider public space. And uh, certainly the Institute of Leadership and Management was uh, an opportunity to do that. It was to you know, work with uh, and chair a, a long-standing institute, been around for a while, um, helping to promote the good practices and ideas of leadership and management, which I've always been very, very interested in. Um, and it was also at that time part of City and Guilds, and I got quite involved in things like apprenticeships and understanding different routes into work. Um, I was doing other things as well then. It was a bit of sort of portfolio and sat on some other boards and did some teaching and bits of consulting. But it was it was a, a very good way, I think, for me to trans, uh, transition from a very large consulting business with all its structure and everything else into uh, something else, which was, um, yeah, as I said, a little bit more kind of publicly oriented rather than just working for big commercial organizations um, and starting to really engage in some of the bigger agendas around skills and leadership management and, and all the things that I'm really passionate about in a, in, a, in a different context. And was it a big shock, that transition? Because it is different. I would imagine it's a very different animal, very different culture yeah. from one organization to the other. Yes, yeah, so I, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a shock, but it was certainly you know a, a very conscious transition and understanding you know the different dynamics of very different businesses. I mean, one of the things I've been taught as a consultant is to work and understand lots of different corporate cultures and organisations and ways of thinking, and to be able to adapt really quite quickly. And I think that's a skill you learn as a consultant. So it wasn't a shock. It was just about you know, I sometimes described it as sort of detoxing from a big and, and uh, you know, very commercially driven enterprise into something that was driven by some you know, somewhat different parameters and objectives. But, um, you know, there was a lot of skills and capabilities that I'd learned in, in my time at Accenture, and particularly, of course, around all the work I'd done in leadership and management anyway, uh, into transitioning into, into roles like that. And, and you've been recognized as a thought leader. Um, and leaving aside, you know, Institute of Leadership and Management and today you work with the Chartered Institute of Personnel um, and Development they've obviously got their own missions and I, I wondered if you know over the course of your career and you know certainly in terms of where you've the direction you've taken latterly if you've got your own mission and purpose that's driving you you know what's the mark that you want to make on the world? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good question. I think it's a very important question for for people to uh, to be able to understand for themselves and reflect on from time to time. And I do reflect on those things. And because you know, aside from anything else, a lot of people have always said to me, you know, "Why do I work so hard so much and commit so much?" But um, it, it, where where I am and what drives me now is uh, there is, as I said, a lot of change going on and a lot of things that we really do need to fundamentally address and think about differently in the world of work. Um, and I'm very driven by all of that. And a lot of them are you know, some very basic things like fairness and, and respect for, for people and due to care that we should feel for employees and all the issues we can see around everything from well-being and engagement and productivity and inclusion and so forth. And, and those to me are really, really important issue, issues. And I think to have the opportunity in any role to, to make a little bit of difference on things that you're passionate about and believe believe in is, is an incredible privilege. And certainly both through things I did before I joined the CIPD, but particularly through this role at the CIPD, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to try to help to you know, highlight these sorts of things and help to engage in the conversation and debate and hopefully move the dial even just a little bit. And, and if I can do that, then I think... Um, you know, then in a sense left a little bit of legacy behind that's that's clearly got to be a good thing and and those are definitely the things that drive me and it's it's i mean you're you're involved very heavily in two areas particularly around sort of people which is one one is flexible working and i think you're yeah. on a government uh task force for that, and also engagement and they're quite engagement's always been a tricky sort of nebulous thing that you know it's the, the sort of the opinion sort of fluctuates on that and what it actually means and mm. flexible working as well it's I think what's interesting about 
your background is that, you know, especially we talked about IT and manufacturing has been featured there. A lot of businesses are struggling to see how flexible working can work for those those type of businesses. I mean, for professional services, that sort of thing, it, it's easier to see how can can apply. But is that something you come up against? Have you got any thoughts on that particularly? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it is something that uh, I come up against. We all come up against you know, all the time. I mean, I think this the whole notion of flexible working. I mean, as as I'm co-chairing this task force, I said let let's start from another you know, paradigm that the reason why flexible working has been raised as an issue is because you know, we have the right to request and things like that, but most of the evidence seems to show that flexible working is sort of rather plateaued and there's nothing like enough opportunities being given to people to work flexibly, and yet we know that flexible working is such an important um, parameter, if you will, in, in providing opportunity to people. So whether it be people with caring responsibilities, you know, parental returners to work, um, older workers, people with disabilities, I mean, all these different parts of our society and not having always the opportunity to uh, work or to continue to work or grow their careers because they're not seeing or not being provided the real opportunities to work more flexibly. So I said, let's start from a different paradigm. Let's say that with all this technology and all these shift in the nature of jobs we do and everything else, why wouldn't we start from a premise that flexible working is the norm? Um, and I think this is when I touched on the idea that, that a lot of paradigms of work we've had for a long time and we're now at a bit of an inflection point. I think this is a very good example. Um, and why wouldn't it be that we should, we, we would all have the opportunities to work the hours that best suit us, that we would, of course, have our individual accountability and in working with our colleagues and working with organizations to make sure that we can all you know, connect as and when we need. But we, we've got to empower people and, and give them more opportunity. Um, I was talking to somebody yesterday who'd actually just joined the CIPD, and, and we're proud of the fact we operate, uh, offer a lot of flexible working opportunities. And she said she'd gone through 14 interviews, all of which she got down to either the final or, or the final shortlist. And when she said, you know, would I be able to work flexibly, they said no. Mm -hmm. And yet the nature of her job, uh, as it is true for many jobs, is, well, why wouldn't that be possible? And, and it's because in many ways we're still operating with a quite an old you know, paradigm of work that we've all got to be there Monday to Friday, nine to five, that I'm going to judge you on how many hours you work and all the rest of it. And, and that's what we've really got to shift. And I think it's going to be one of the biggest shifts we'll see in the next 10, 20 years is that people will work in very different ways, different organizational models, uh, working uh, much more flexibly. And, and we really should do that because as I said, it's good for people, it's good for society, it's good for inclusion, it's good for productivity. Um, but we and, and we, we have the means to do it, but a lot of it is about changing mindsets and, and paradigms of thinking about what work is. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a, there's a certainly in the UK, I think, it is this idea about presenteeism. You know, if you're, if you're mm -hmm. physically there, you're working, but it doesn't translate. Our productivity figures are, you know, for, as a, particularly for the UK, we're lagging behind Italy mm. and France and, and, you know, obviously... There's, there's a sort of a, a perception that you know they have more flexible. I don't know if it's true, more flexibility into in longer lunch breaks or whatever. Mm. So I don't. There is this correlation in people's minds between being present and productivity that doesn't really hold. It doesn't seem to have any factual basis behind it. No, and, and it doesn't. Other, and you're right. And it's it, so the productivity challenge is an interesting one because, as you said, if if you if you ask most people in this country, I mean, we still in many ways have a kind of process and work ethic people do work long hours typically and you're, you're right if you compare us to our sort of near near neighbors on on the continent they have a generally speaking the perception is and i've worked in, in many countries that yeah that there is a slightly more relaxed mm. style to work um and yet somehow they seem to be more productive and and so the, these are these things are all connected and, and there's been lots of interesting work where um, or even organizations just taking it upon themselves to try things like saying well let's not change what we expect in terms of the output but let's just say we'll have a group over here who work four days and we a group over here who work five days a week and we'll see if they produce the same amount of output and 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 they do because you know if you 
have you know, a slightly shorter working week, you're likely to be a little bit more rested and all these other things, and you'd be very focused because you know you've got to get through the work. And so the, there's a lot of you know, psychology and behavioral thinking and nudge thinking that we've got to go through. And, and as you said, and you can look at environments like manufacturing and assembly lines, and I've talked to plenty of businesses in that world, and they say, well, we can't possibly do that because we've got a production line to run. Well, there are lots of businesses that you know, need to keep their facilities open you know, many, many hours and keep things running. Um, but you can still flex your workforce in terms of the shifts they do. And, and I think we're beginning to see more and more models where organizations say, well, rather than us determining it all or having some clever algorithm that determines everybody's, you know, every minute that they've got to be there, why don't we let the, the teams work it out between them and let them figure out uh, how to keep things running and how they can balance their own individual needs with the collective needs of what you've got to produce. And, mm. and that's a big shift of thinking. I mean, it, it actually, interestingly, before we had all these clever work scheduling systems, was much more the norm. Mm. Um, whether you're engineers trying to figure out stuff of you know, all the different houses you've got to visit or whether you're you know, very interesting models now with social care and nurses who've got to visit homes saying, well, why don't you, why don't you all figure it out rather than us sitting here as management? And this very old paradigm of management, which is we've got to control all the tasks and we've got to tell everybody what to do and here's all the rules. Um, and that, you know, that's the par old paradigm of work and we've got to change some of these things. It's going to be interesting to watch what happens. So I do think myself personally, given that I, you know, I see so many people starting up their own businesses at leaving corporate world because of lifestyle, because they don't want to work round the clock mm -hmm. and I think it will get to a tipping point where you know they are, talent is already hard to get and I think unless businesses do see the light in terms of flexible working and you know and, and letting people have more freedom I think there'll be an, an, a big issue in terms of recruitment but uh, anyway yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with that Sarah and, and it's, it's a point I make to any of these companies that say we can't possibly do it I say well good luck in the future with recruiting and retaining your people exactly. you know, because more and more people are talking about work-life integration not just mm -hmm. work-life balance which seems to imply that I've got my work and then I got the rest of my life when actually particularly the younger generation say well that's no, all part of life um, and, I, and I want to find a, a good balance and if you look at, it, at the surveys of young people in particular you know, the vast majority would say that to them you know, if, if they had the choice, they'd much rather know and believe that they could work more flexibly yeah. um, and not feel that they're just tied to, you know, some treadmill of work determined actually by some very old paradigms of thinking. Mm. It's, it is going to be interesting because I think a lot of people value time much more than money because you, it is, yeah. there's, there's an infinite amount of, you know, money but not time. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, Recently, you gave a talk on the future of work, and I wanted to see, I mean, we may have touched on some of this already, but I wanted mm. to see if you could share your view on the top three challenges you think business is going to have around people. And also, to, if you think these are universal uh, for all business or whether there are different challenges for micro, for small businesses versus big companies. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the sort of top three challenges as we look ahead, as, as I've already said, I think I see, and I think a lot of people see, you know, a real inflection points and some very rapid uh, change. And, and the, f the first thing that people have been debating, and I've seen more debate on the future work now than I've ever seen before, is what jobs are we all going to be doing? Because mm -hmm. if you see the advances of AI and machine learning, for example, and, and moving up into much more complex analytical and cognitive tasks, does that start to displace a lot of um, jobs that we do today, um, all the way from lawyers and accountants and, and many others that that arguably you know, machines can increasingly do a lot of those work activities for. So the first question I think for businesses is how do you see your organization evolving and how do you see the kinds of capabilities that you're going to most need uh, in the future and recognize that when I say capabilities, it's not just about technical and job skills. Interestingly now, more and more businesses are talking about it's actually the behavioral attitudinal things that we need to focus on. So they're saying things like we're increasingly looking to recruit on attitude because mm -hmm. we know we're going to have to train for the technical and job skills because those technical and job skills are going to be changing much more rapidly. So I think you know the first thing is to be able to really look ahead and, and, and think perhaps in, in different ways because we've typically not been very good at you know, long-term people strategies, you know, strategic workforce planning type ideas. Um, and where we have done it, it's tended to be, well, we've got these jobs today, so we'll add 5% to them and that's our projection for the future. Yeah. When in fact, 
what we're really talking about now is having to think you know, quite differently and be much more adaptive and agile. So, so that's the first one, is, is really thinking about your skills and capabilities and what you really most need, and then making sure you're, you're consistently talking about and developing and recruiting for and rewarding uh, these sorts of behavioral skills uh, and capabilities, which we haven't always spent a lot of time on. Um, I think the second is, of course, being more agile, and we, we, we hear this word a lot now, um, or adaptive. Because if, if the future is going to be more unpredictable, and it's, it's not just technology, it's also a lot of political and economic uncertainty as well, but, but it's going to mean that one of the core attributes of a business is that it is adaptive, adaptive or agile. And that has many implications. I mean, one of which is the skills one, which is that I'm able to upskill and reskill, and I really do see learning and development as a core and strategic capability of my business. I'm also able to recruit you know, the kinds of people I want and, and, and think differently about where I might source talent from because I don't necessarily have to employ them all. And that all go back, goes back to this first point about you know, long-term workforce planning. So as I said, build, building more agile organizations and that also says that you know, the leadership and the ways we think and how we empower people and even how we think about strategy itself, which in the past you know, we might have gloried in writing 500-page PowerPoint decks to tell us with great certainty what we're doing for the next five years, that's no longer going to be the case um, for most of us. It's going to be about a leaner strategy, much more about vision and purpose and direction, and then making sure you've got the culture and the leadership and the capabilities internally to adapt as, as, as you go along. Um, and then I think the third thing is, is really about creating great organizations that are truly inclusive um, and open. And, and what I mean by that is, and again, it's linked to the first two points, is that we all know, and we've known for a very, very long time, that if you want to make sure that you're breaking out of the group think cycles, if you want to make sure you're managing your risk, if you want to make sure you're being creative and innovative, then you, you need different people with different experiences and backgrounds. Mm. Now, I think what we're also understanding so much more is that and we need organizations that better reflect the communities and societies in which we work so that if our communities and societies in which we work are diverse, which they are, then our organizations should be diverse as well because our businesses and organizations are part of society and they should play that role. Mm. Um, and, you know, of course, it's also about being able to access all the talents and skills you need. So I think that's the third, third one, which is really how do we grow businesses that are much more inclusive um, that really are valuing and, and recognizing and, and making you know, a big thing of, of their ability to recruit and attract and retain much more diverse talent across all these different dimensions of diversity and really bring those diverse talents and skills together uh, to drive for a greater common good. Um, and then be transparent about it, you know, report mm -hmm. on it and share it and, and make it a real virtue of your organization. So I think those are sort of three big things. And then to your question, large or small, you know, does it apply to big companies as well as small? I think absolutely it does. Um, now the, the level of detail or sophistication you might go through some of the things that, you know, particularly on the more sort of strategic stuff, maybe a little less if you're a smaller business, but they're all the same things. I think we have to be able to lift our heads up and look at what's happening around us and then plan a little bit more for the future. Uh, make sure that we are adaptive as we go along and we're not just rigid in our ways and we can sense check of what's going on around us and, and be agile and that we can build inclusive workplaces and as i said i think that applies for organizations large and small um, but we also need to teach I mean, we need to teach managers to think in these ways and support them effectively and uh, and then i think increasingly frankly hold them to account for some of these things well that's really really good stuff there that the rise of blockchain technology and the rise of the gig economy and and this whole lifestyle thing I do think, and I just get your view on it quickly, I do think that the idea of employment um, may well have to change. You know, if, if, if organizations need to be agile, maybe it needs to be more project. And with blockchain technology, you can engage directly with people. You can have references for people with, that, that can't be tampered with. So it's starting to engage with individuals um, as entrepreneurs. And, it, you know, I guess we've had contractors before, but this is slightly at a different level. So you bring in employees as you need them. It's sort of temps, mm -hmm. but high powered temps because things are changing so quickly. You can't afford maybe to have them as employees and they don't want to be. Do, have you yeah. seen anything around blockchain? Is that figured at all in the things that you talk about or, or come across? 
Yeah, it, it's definitely <clears throat> one of these sort of emergent areas of thinking. But, but as you said, it's, it's seeing how you can use things like blockchain to enable that mm. access to talent in very different ways. And yeah. so when we talk about, you're right, when we talk about agility and when I think about strategic workforce planning, it's recognizing that, yes, we can access skills in lots of ways. We don't just have to employ people. And as you said, we've had contractor models in the past. But this is the move into you know, what's sometimes called the human cloud and, and the gig economy. In other words, that people can connect almost wherever they are and mm. they can provide some services in a sort of gig type way to organizations wherever they might be it is a growing and emergent construct. And as you said, with things like blockchain, then that makes it more transparent and easier. Mm. So you know who you're dealing with and all of the rest of it. So these, yeah, I think will be very profound shifts in organizations as well. And again, there's a lot of evidence. If you look at the surveys of many people saying, you know what, I, I, it helps with my flexible working, um, <laughs> but that I can, I don't necessarily want to be an employee. If I've got valuable skills, I can contract them out. I can be more of the master of my own destiny and so forth. And, and whilst, yes, we have to worry about the so-called more insecure nature of work, and there's a, you know, a lot of people and politicians in particular worry about, uh, well, if more and more people are working these ways, then it's all very insecure and they can be taken advantage of and so forth. Yes, that's true, but it, it could also happen if you're an employee. So oh, it yeah. isn't something necessarily peculiar to, to these forms of work. But you know, we've got to do more to educate people. There's still things we have to think about, taxation systems and, and uh, employment law, because it, it's all a bit... Um, behind in terms of these different forms of working but the construct interestingly of, of organizations that are much more sort of heterogeneous in the makeup of their workforce um, the so-called networked organizations yes. that, those constructs have actually been around for quite a long time um, but I think technology is increasingly enabling that sort of thing the scarcity of particular skills is also forcing mm -hmm. us to think differently about where and how we might access talent and as I said you don't have to employ them all so these are these are all very big questions as organizations look ahead and say right where do we think we're going to be in the next sort of five to ten years what are the kind of core capabilities we want and need and where are we going to get them from and, and this idea of creating inclusion as, as a construct is, is not just about your employees it's, it's beyond that it's thinking about you know, diversity also in terms of how and where people work mm. um, and, and building that into business models. So, that, so there's a lot of exciting stuff emerging. And as you said, blockchain, I think, can and will be an enabler more and more to these sorts of things. But I think we can already see lots of evidence of these models today. Yeah, brilliant. And I just want to quickly ask you, and before we move on to your speaking, you know, we've mm. talked about employers and how they can prepare themselves for the challenges that are coming up. Have you got any view on what employees should be doing to best prepare themselves for the future? Because, you know, those days where you had guaranteed employment, you know, people have to see themselves mm. as their own business. Is it, you know, is there anything you can say to that to help people, you know, prepare themselves for what's coming? Yeah, it's very important, and I think several things. I mean, I talk to a lot of young people. I've got you know, young daughters of my own who are coming into the workplace, and, and the first thing I always say to them is don't panic because they're likely to be working a lot longer. Yeah. Um, they're also likely to see many different shifts and changes in the jobs and nature of jobs that they do. So, so I think the first thing to say is, is let's go back to some of these basic things. What are the core and transferable skills that I have and that I should be developing. And, and we're trying to really um, enable a much, much bigger debate on this because if I go back to things I said before, that actually more and more what employers are saying is I want people with these you know, good attitudinal skills, so people who can work in teams, who can collaborate, who can communicate, who can think critically, who can judge, you know, got situational judgment and awareness, who work and think ethically and so forth. These are all the sorts of core skills that we, we've been talking about actually for quite some time. I mean, even in the construct of things like employability. But we haven't clearly articulated them. We don't have consistent frameworks for them. They are not built in, therefore, in any consistent way back into our educational system, which yeah. persists in far too much specialization. You know, precisely the point in time when we're beginning to get to a world which says that actually, well, I can't predict all the jobs in the future. I know I'm going to have to upskill and reskill, and I know my employers or whatever other mechanisms are going to be out there. I'm going to have to continuously learn. 
Um, but I need to know that I've got these core skills mm -hmm. that are transferable and recognizable and can be built in lots of different ways. So, so I think that is one of the very big debates that we need to be having because it then also, I think, moves us from another paradigm that's been very troubling for quite a while, which is that you know, because of this sort of focus on endless qualifications and things, <laughs> a lot of people who aren't necessarily academically excellent are often missing out. And, and even if I've said things like degrees in this country, in the United Kingdom, uh, and it's true in many other countries too, but we've had this long push to get more and more people to university. And then employers almost using a degree as a basic thought mechanism, whether I really need a degree or a graduate for the job or not. And, and so actually going back to a focus on these core skills, I think is also a very important element of making sure everybody's got the opportunities to get on and progress. So that's definitely one, and, the, and very linked to that then is, is the idea that we've all got to be curious. As individuals, we, we, we all have to recognize that we, we're going to be continuously learning and, and evolving, and that is a very positive thing. And, and therefore, actually, one of the things, and some educationists would argue this is what you do teach through education, is teaching people the value of learning and how to learn. And in particular, today we have so much access to so much great content and learning mm -hmm. all for free. You know, so it's seeing that as a, it's the great benefits and advantage and not, or moving beyond the world where I think many people think that, you know, I won't, once I've done my education or my qualifications, I'm done, aren't I? Well, <laughs> we're never done. Um, and, and so that would be the other thing I'd say. So understand what your core skills are and what the transferable skills are and really keep developing those and talking about those. But then also to have this real curiosity for learning and keep seeking out opportunities to learn and develop because that is what will, I think, uh, set aside the, you know, the people who will continue to progress and adapt and grow from those who, who will find it hard because everything is changing around us. Brilliant. No, that's really great advice, I think. And it's amazing how many people sort of find it difficult to learn at school, but when they've got some context later on in life to actually yeah. apply stuff, they become yeah. voracious learners. And that's, that's a really interesting dynamic that I think... It is, because you know, we were teaching very particular things. I mean, te teaching people to pass exams, particularly rote learning, mm. couldn't be further away from, from real life. No. And, and, and increasingly with access through technology to endless amounts of knowledge the real thing we want and particularly all this debate about fake news and post-truth world and all that stuff is the ability to think critically yeah. um, and be able to sort what's good evidence or fact from what isn't and those sorts of skills and you think are we really teaching that and i mean there are definitely some courses and programs which do so i'm not saying it's, it's all bad but I, I think we do need much much more focus with the education system on these sorts of things because the sad truth is and going back to the productivity debate that in this country in particular we have a very big mismatch between the kinds of skills and capabilities that are coming out of our education system and increasingly the kinds of skills and and, and capabilities that we're looking for in the world of work and yeah. we have to address that Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you. That was really, really interesting. And, and I want to turn to your speaking. Now, I've yeah. seen you speak. You're a great speaker. And I know it's a fundamental part of your role today. But is it mm. something you've done from, from the beginning of, the, of your career? I, just, I would imagine it is an extension. But, and have you mm. always felt comfortable with it? Yeah, it, it's something I've done a, a lot of. And, and I remember, yes, obviously, as a consultant, you often have to stand on your feet and present things. Um, but I remember as a, as a you know, junior or, or coming up to a slightly more senior manager, I think others saw in me something that I quite enjoyed speaking more broadly. And so I, I started to do more of it within the firm and run various groups and things of that nature. I, yeah, it, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because you, you, when you talk to people about their worst dread, a lot of people say, oh my God, standing my feet speaking in public. But, but actually, I think it, it, you can definitely learn how to do it and get comfortable with it. Uh, I suppose I've been fortunate that I've always felt reasonably comfortable on my feet and in many ways quite enjoy it. And, and, um, and then I've had the opportunity to develop that, I suppose, through my career in consulting and then beyond. Um, but it's it's a curious thing, and it's, um, it's a, some people are more comfortable than others. And I've just been fortunate, I suppose, that from the from my early years, I always felt reasonably comfortable on my feet. I think it's it's quite in, it is an interesting one because there is a lot of people do have this fear. But I truly believe that you know we're talking about core skills, transferable skills, mm, that mm. being able to speak 
is an absolute fundamental skill if you want to get yeah. to, I don't think you can yeah. become a CEO without it. I don't, yeah. you know, I think it's one of those things that people have got to kind of, you know, get over in order to get their career where they want it to do or their business. Mm-hmm. Has it helped? I'm assuming, you, you know, from what you said, it's been a massive boon to your career to be able to do that. Yeah, it, it definitely has, Sarah. I mean, yeah, and, and, and it's thinking about being able to speak or speak up and articulate your perspective clearly and distinctly is actually something you need in meetings and groups and teams and everything else. It's not just about standing up on some stage or platform. And so I, I agree, it's a very, very fundamental skill. And and it's, it's obviously also important that we can coach and mentor people as leaders who we might see in our teams or, or organizations a little bit more reticent in coming forwards and encourage them to come forwards and speak up and create the cultures where they feel it's safe to do that. Because you know, often the reason people are afraid of speaking up or speaking in public platforms, they'll say, oh, well, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing or I might dry up or I won't be clear or... And, and those are all things that you can that you can be taught. Um, so I think you're right. It's a very fundamental skill, even from the most basic ability to contribute to a team and have your opinion heard and all the rest of it, right up to yeah. So I, I think there's almost no leadership position um, in any organisation doesn't require you to be able to stand in front of a group or a crowd and, and articulate your thoughts and. And try to provide a bit of inspiration and, and so you're right as you go up in organizations it becomes more and more important but I think almost at any level it is actually quite a fundamental skill. It's a nice segue actually into I'm, I'm interested in your process for preparing mm. your talks now obviously you know I do it's, it's evident that you're very good off off the cuff but I'm sure that there's a lot of preparation goes into the, the sort of keynotes that you do can you tell me about that and what you do? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I think everybody has their own way of working. I, I've always been really bad at reading off scripts. I don't like it. I, I think it's not authentic. But <clears throat> of course, you know, certainly when people first start to speak, and in lots of circumstances, having a scripted talk is is it has its role definitely. Um, but it's something I've never really really done. And and. For those of us who, who do use scripts a lot, then going off a script can feel quite uncomfortable, whereas I actually feel constrained by a script mm-hmm. because in the end, most of what I'm talking about, I'm, I'm not a politician, so I don't have to mind every single word I say, um, but most of what I'm talking about are, are kind of big issues, big themes, things I care about and, and want to put some passion and energy into, and I think scripting it all can constrain you, but it also you can pick up on the mood of an audience and what they're kind of following you on and what they're finding particularly interesting or you can throw out questions to them and engage. So I think particularly given the nature of a lot of what I do do uh, in terms of speaking is I'm trying to make uh, my talks interesting and engaging and connect with people. So in terms of my own preparation, uh, I suppose I've talked on these subjects for quite a number of years now. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of rattles around in my head uh, as I go through these talks. And I do them sometimes with slides, sometimes with no slides. But I've, I've kind of developed in my own mind over the years a lot of different themes and connections and segues, which I then tend to follow um, without, as I said, needing to, to script it all. Um, but certainly one of the tips I use always when I start is I always try to think, what am I going to say in the first three minutes? Um, and in particular, what am I going to say to help to connect to the audience? Now, that is some obvious things like, you know, if I'm, as I was with you in Swindon or something, trying to think about something about the locality or something that just kind of references and connects to the audience and acknowledges that we are where we are. I think I talked about uh, the, the STEAM museum we were in, for example. And, and so... I'll always try to think of ways in which just to connect to the audience, but also show a little bit a bit of my human side, because we yes. see too many people just stand up on stage and just start speaking. You think, yeah, but you know, I might as well be watching a video, but <laughs> so trying to make it human. And so that's, that's probably about as far as my real structure of thinking goes before I step up, is to just think about some of those things. What am I going to say in the first few minutes is to connect and engage, and then you know, take it from there. Oh, that's that's really good advice. You know, I, I love that. I love that. That's that's great to have that sort of catalogue of material in your head that you can access. But it's been mm. it's been honed over over years, hasn't it? That's great. Mm. And how yeah. important do you feel your performance and delivery are to the success of your talk? And are there particularly th- things that you 
focus on intentionally and do when mm. you speak? Yeah, I think we all have to recognise, particularly these kinds of things. I mean, there are lots of different reasons why people stand and speak, and but I, I think for the most part, the, the common things are you're trying to make a connection, um, and in in many senses, you have to think about it without it sounding intimidating. You have to think about it as a little bit of a performance as yes. well. I mean, you, you're up there, you're a lot of people watching you. Um, and, and you've got to be able to engage. And, and to me, that's everything from how you stand and how you move and, and how you ca catch people's eye contact and, and as well as what you say. I mean, it's the, it's the non-verbal as well as the verbal signals, and we all know how important that is from a communication standpoint. Um, I've been taught some of those things, and you know, uh, which is good, or you're taught the sort of techniques of tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then remind them what you just told them, and talking sort of three big points at a time or whatever, and all those sorts of structural techniques. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think it is actually physically how you turn up. Are you in command of the platform and stage, not in an arrogant way, but the, you're standing there and looking confident and looking like you, you probably know what you're talking about. Uh, but also, and if you're not, then there's no harm in showing your humanity and mm. saying, I'm a bit nervous about this, not done this before, this is a big crowd or whatever. I mean, there's no harm in doing that. Um, because I think, again, a big part of connecting with an audience is to show your human side and, and, and engage with them in those ways. Um, I think other little techniques is obviously from time to time try to use a bit of humor because uh, it's just another way of everybody relaxing and connecting and engaging. Um, and then, of course, try to be clear on what your main points are. And as I said, I think that technique of saying, well, this is what I'm going to talk about, and then I'm going to talk about it, and then I'm going to remind you what I talked about, um, is it, not a bad technique. And you use a lot of anecdotes and stories as well, yeah. don't you? Yeah, yes, I do. Yeah, I think that's also very important, um, you know, to bring points to life. Um, and I'm lucky because I've uh, experienced a lot of things and talked to lots of different people and so on. But... Um, Yes, I think that is really, really important to, to bring things to life, particularly, you know, we're talking a lot about people talking in a business context. Um, <clears throat> we can talk about dry fact and all of that, but there's nothing that quite connects your story. And it is, you know, in the end, you know, this point about a performance is you're telling a story. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to tell a story, you can talk about dry facts and all those other things. But my goodness, it it comes to life when you, you know, you use anecdotes and other ways of illustrating what you're talking about. Yeah, that's brilliant. And and sort of last question is before I have some standard questions I want to run past you. Mm. Um, in in terms of people that you've seen speak, mm. what you know, what in your opinion makes a great speaker? And is there something in someone that you've seen that you thought, oh, that you know, that was amazing? And if so, what was it? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a, a bit of a combination of things to talk about. So that so the first is I think. It, there's no doubt that somebody who comes across as really human and really engaging, and we use that word a lot, uh, is is powerful in terms of what they get across. And and I've seen people uh, um, stand on stages. Obviously, I, I see a lot of other people speak, and we've got our annual com conference coming up next week, so it's going to be interesting to see different people speak. Some, you know, literally just standing in the middle of the stage, not moving very much at all, but my goodness, just holding an audience in the palm of their hand because they're, they're talking with real passion, real uh, vibrancy and belief in what they're saying, but, but, but conveying it in very, very human ways. And, and particularly, of course, a lot of the subjects that I talk about or engage in are very human subjects, going back to the beginning of the conversation about people at work and all these other things. Um, then they, 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 those are the most compelling. So I think this sort of humanity thing and talking with, you know, that, that we're all human and I'm human, we're human, let's talk about some of these things and, and I can engage at that level is is great. It's not to say you can't do it if you're talking about, I don't know, technology or whatever, but, but that I think is one very powerful thing. Um, I think use of stories, anecdotes and humor uh, is always really, really effective, but but mm. you don't have to force it. And, and certainly, yes. I think whilst I do actually think anecdotes and stories are, are vital to any really good talk, but humour doesn't have to be. Uh, and and there's there's nothing worse than people trying to force humour <laughs> or, or coming up with some structured joke in the middle of a presentation. I mean, that doesn't really work. But but just again, showing your human side, a little bit of lightheartedness, or even if you make a slight mistake, make a bit of a joke about it or whatever. I mean, there 
a whole variety of ways to do it. But um, I think those are some of the really key attributes. And, and finally, I would say the best speakers have a real third sense about their audience. Yes. Um, and when I've noticed that over the years, because I've done so much of it, I can pick up mood and engagement of an audience very, very quickly. And this is one, one of the wonderful things about uh, the human brain, our emotional and our cognitive brains and so forth. And, and obviously, uh, speaking from a public stage is communication and therefore understanding the basis of communication and non-verbal as well as verbal cues is really important and you can understand that as a speaker so you can the obvious things are if the audiences are st sat there looking rather stony faced with all of their arms folded or half of them are falling asleep then <laughs> don't keep just doing what you're doing change it yes. re-engage them um and and it, I, it does amaze me sometimes when you watch speakers you can clearly see they're missing the mark yeah. Um, the audience is, is getting restless, and yet they plow on regardless. And then you watch the, the speaker losing eye contact with the audience, because actually, even though they may not have realized consciously that they're losing the audience, subconsciously they certainly have, so they start to look away from the audience rather than look at the audience. Um, so I think all of that part of speaking is really, really important, and it is a basic communication skill. Yes, that's fantastic tips there. Thank you. That's great. Okay, well, I have some stand questions before I let you go. So, yeah. um, first one is, what's the best thing speaking has done for you? Confidence, I would think. Um, you know, it, it, they're not easy things to do. As we said before, it's, it's amazing when you look at the, the list of things that surveys sometimes come up with saying what you're most frightened of and people have public speaking at the top. Um, if you do it and you do it repeatedly, you get more confident. And that is a good thing, not in an arrogant way, but just being able to be confident in what you are thinking. It helps you certainly to structure your thinking um, and then be able to communicate it effectively. And it, it's those sorts of things. So I think overall it, it, it's confident, but it is confident because you have really thought things through. You know how to communicate them well and you know what lands. Um, and it's it's also, I think, a vital attribute of any leader. It's what a colleague of mine at Accenture once said is that we should all have a teachable point of view. Um, and I think particularly if you're in any kind of position or leadership or influence or whatever, you should be able to articulate your teachable point of view. What what is what is all this experience or exposure to things taught you and how do you want to communicate that? Because as I said, that's that's again the art of good speaking. It's about you. It's not about uh, you know, 58 other people's opinions. But you're up there on a stage, and you're talking about whatever the subject is, and it, and people want to know what is your perspective on it, um, and and that idea of a teachable point of view. So I think it's it's a mixture of those things. It's certainly confidence. It's certainly helping help me to structure my own thoughts and beliefs on many subjects, and then hopefully to be able to communicate them effectively. That's brilliant. Thank you. And what have you had a bad gig? Like, what, is there one that sticks in your mind that's like, oh no, is it, or have you just, are they, have they all gone perfectly? No, no, they haven't. Uh, no, I've definitely had bad gigs, and and um, yeah, I'm I'm my own worst uh, critic, and and because I'm very attuned to audiences now and how they respond. You, I I definitely know when I've had a, a good gig, but I also know when it. I certainly have a strong sense it hasn't gone quite so well. But then you know, it's, it's a curious thing. I've talked in many parts of the world too. I mean, if, if you go and talk in front of, say, a Finnish audience or a Korean audience, um, you, you don't get much reaction. Um, <laughs> and it's not just a language thing. You know, those cultures are much more sort of taciturn and less demonstrative and, and emotionally expressive you know, versus, say, talking in front of an American audience or... You know, and to some extent, a UK audience. So, so you can sometimes talk in a very different context. And think, oh my God, I just utterly bombed you know, because <laughs> there was very little reaction from the audience. And then you talk to them after and say, no, oh, that was brilliant. Oh, wonderful speech. Um, so, so you can, and, and of course, it can vary by even corporate cultures too. There are some corporate cultures that are very kind of out there and everybody you know, interacting uh, very visibly, and others which are much quieter. Um, or it might be levels of seniority. You know, you know, sometimes you know, younger people might feel more you know, afraid of expressing emotion if all their bosses are there and the bosses aren't expressing emotion. So there are those sorts of dynamics. But in, in any event, yes, absolutely, I, I know the ones that haven't gone so well. And <laughs> you think, well, I didn't really make the right connections or I missed a context or something. Um, 
but I think, you know, as in all things in life, I think we all have to be self-aware. We all have to recognize you're never going to do things perfectly yes. and that you want to keep learning and improving and, and not be afraid of that. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you. And what's the, the one book you've read that's had the most impact and why? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I read a lot. I read voraciously because going back to this notion of curiosity, I think I'm endlessly curious mm -hmm. about so many things. I read lots of books on economics and science and history and business and everything else. And my family always say, why don't you read more novels? And I say, well, I, when I finish all those books, then maybe I will. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love books like Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I think mm -hmm. it's a seminal piece of work. And what, what really interests me about it is, um, he, he's the sort of godfather of behavioral economics. So he's a, he was a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for economics. Um, and I really profoundly believe in a lot of that stuff. And <clears throat> this, this understanding of how we respond to things, what drives bias, the differences between our emotional brain and our cognitive brains, you know, what he calls system one and system two, um, and all those other things, and really, really interesting. But he, he talks about these things both from a deep insight on sort of behavior and neuroscience and many years of research, but also talks about it in societal and economic terms. Um, and I think, you know, these are the sorts of things we need to understand so much better, all the way from how we assess people and develop people and how people learn, how people react to things, you know, bias, conscious and unconscious bias, what you know, all the nudge theory stuff about how do we really influence behavioral change at scale. And a lot of it is very rooted in, in the kind of research and ideas that Daniel Kahneman has put forward. And, and as I said, this whole field of behavioral economics. And, and economics has always interested me because I remember reading a book once on economics one of my daughters gave me. And the first sentence in it was, was economics is about understanding human behavior. I thought, gosh, I thought it was all about numbers. Um, so that's definitely one of my, my all-time top favorites. Brilliant. I'd say if I'm allowed, a, am I allowed a second? Oh, yes, of course. Well, my second one would be Sapiens um, by Yuval Harari, which again is a, an astonishing piece of work um, and is quite literally you know, the entire history of humanity from the very, very beginning. But he picks up themes uh, along the way, a bit like you know, this idea of your emotional brain and the fact that that was, you know, that was our first brain and, and the you know, the, the, our cognitive capabilities develop much, much later on. And so we're still driven by many things that come from our sort of primate ancestry. But, but he goes on to talk about the growth of civilizations and all these other things. It's a really astonishing piece of work. But then in particular, finishes it, and he has written subsequent books, of course, but finishes it with, and where are we all going? Um, you know, what ultimately is the purpose of humanity? And, and, you know, just to get philosophical on it for a second, I mean, I think it, those are very profound questions and have been asked by the ancient philosophers as, as well as many others since. And, and people like Aristotle, who, who questioned, you know, what was humanity there for and ultimately concluded that the goal of humanity should be this construct of eudaimonia, which very broadly translates into the idea of ideas today of well-being and contentedness and so forth. And saying that ultimately should be what we can drive for and create. And you think, that's pretty cool and that should be a <laughs> bit of a driver for all of us shouldn't it Absolutely. Um, so sapiens would be my other, other book which i think is again a phenomenal piece of work brilliant and i think in that book sapiens there's a big um focus as well on human imagination and stories and how the big yeah. impact of stories to to actually get those early ancestors to be successful as tribes and grow because of the fact that we're able to use you know stories to and imagination to connect with people but that's uh yeah, yeah. i shall put those two Which books is Sorry, go on. Put those two books in your library, yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, that point about storytelling, which we've already talked about in the context of communications and, and making speeches, it is. It's very powerful, and you're absolutely right. He, Harari makes a real point about how storytelling has, has helped bring us together. It's helped create problems as well, but it's a very fundamental part of what it means to be human. Brilliant. And I'll, I'll put those in the show notes so people can go and check those books out. Brilliant. Okay, last couple of ones. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever had? Um, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, learn from your mistakes, I think. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the reality is, is we all make mistakes and nobody's perfect. Um, and, and the main thing is, is that we all learn from mistakes. And interestingly, if you go into the psychology of it, we tend to learn more from our mistakes than 
our successes because often the mistakes are the things that really stick with you and think, oh my God, why did I do that? Um, but it, so it's, it's, I think it's important as a sort of self-learning uh, device, if you will, so learning from your mistakes. But it's also a very important one in an organizational context because as I say, we all make mistakes. Now, there are some mistakes, obviously, that means you really have shot your bolt, as it were, but, <laughs> but, it, but there, there are many other mistakes that actually, if people don't feel that they can make, make mistakes or admit to mistakes, then you're going to have a very, very unhealthy workplace culture. Because you know, learning cultures are built from the idea that it won't all go right and what can we learn from what didn't go right and move on. Um, so I think learning from your mistakes, both at an individual level as well as a collective level, is probably the one that's uh, stood with me most because it can be, feel quite contrary to many people when you say, well, shouldn't we just be celebrating success all the time? Yeah, no, I think most of the big successes have come out of failure. I think one of the things yeah. someone once told me yeah. was fail fast. So I've kept that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah. Get, get, get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Right, last question then before I, I let you go, because I know you're, you're probably rushing off to meetings and all sorts of things. So if you could have a mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Um, I would choose Aristotle, who I've already mentioned. I think it just astonishes me to think back in, in civilization and thousands of years and some of the, we've forgotten more than we know. Um, and, and some of the things that some of the ancient philosophers thought about and their big thoughts about the universe, the meaning of life and humanity and everything are really, really profound. And 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 I think maybe it's the first year as I get older, but I'm really fascinated by those sorts of you know the biggest questions of all, as it were. And I think somebody like him would be uh, really phenomenal. Um, the other person that I, I think would be interesting was sort of in a similar vein, but in a sort of deep science sense, is Stephen Hawking, yes. Professor Stephen Hawking. Um, because in the end, you know, you, you realise that all of our time on Earth is not that long, and and we have this extraordinary mind that we've been given or has evolved with us and and the opportunity to open that mind up to some of the biggest questions of all and, and think about them not just in some massive existential way but what do they mean to us day by day and how we mm. think about things um and therefore i think you know the, the best mentors are the ones that open your mind up and make you think about things differently from different perspectives and then think about now how much you apply that in your day-to-day -day life and I, I can't think of two more mind-expanding mentors than <laughs> someone like Aristotle or Stephen Hawking. Thank you, no, that's really good. We've not had either of those before, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Really, really amazing insight and tips there for lots of different things for business, for future work, for speaking. Now, if people want to find out about more about the Chartered Institute of Personnel Development, if they're a business that wants to find out, because there's a lots mm -hmm. of research that the organization does, you know, that will help individuals and businesses, what's the best place to go for them to find out about that? Yeah, no, um, just go to our website. Um, so, you know, just Google CIPD. Um, we've got uh, websites which have got a lot of research and content and learning which is very free to access uh, I mean our, our wider purpose is championing better work and working lives and we profoundly believe in sharing good knowledge and practice as far and wide as we can and, and so just go to our website um, and you can access a lot of stuff and we're also pushing out in you know, digital forms through things like MOOCs so free open online courses that people can access through things like the future learn platform so but it's all there on, on the website and that's the that's the best source of initial contact for sure brilliant and if people want to connect with you are you on social media at all what's the best place to find yeah. you yeah i'm on twitter and on linkedin and my, my two main ones um and obviously email but those are my two main ones and um so i'm quite easy to find a memorable name so it's not difficult to find me excellent brilliant well I, i'm sure people will will try and reach out and uh and connect and i just want to say thank you again for your time and for all the great stuff that you've shared today peter thank you very much no thank you sir it's my pleasure i said it would be meaty I hope you got some great tips for your speaking and business from that interview. And it's amazing to think that the changes over the next 20 to 30 years are going to be bigger than what's happened over my lifetime. I remember phones coming out like a big brick on my ear. 
anyway, please do check out the CIPD website. It is a treasure trove of research and great insight around leadership, people management, uh, employment law and training and development too. And the link to the books that Peter mentioned are in the show notes. And if you use those links, I will make a small affiliate commission, which won't affect the price you pay. It'll just cost Amazon. So that's okay then. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to the show. You are fabulous. I really appreciate you giving up your time and lending me your ears. Um, Hit subscribe if you want to hear more. And if you know anyone you think would enjoy the speaking club, go ahead and tell them about it. And... Last thing, if you haven't left the show a review yet, oh, please do. It'll just take you a couple of minutes and it makes all the difference to getting new listeners. So last thing to say, have a great rest of the week. And as usual, I want you to go out there and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking.